Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on me. Free, 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 free. I'm Jean McCarthy and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined the Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Good evening, everyone. This is Ellie, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. I'm here with my co-host, Amanda, and tonight we are going to talk about relapse prevention. So we're going to spend just a couple of minutes talking about forward steps to recovery and relapse prevention, or forward steps in recovery and relapse prevention, and then we're going to go to our guests. There are two main elements to relapse prevention, and they involve thinking and actions, and those are two separate, separate things. So there's constructive thinking to think about, and again, these are tips and advice of things that you can do to prevent getting to the point where you pick up a drink. And this is a huge one. I remember learning this first one when I was in rehab, and it's thought-stopping. Just when you start to romanticize a drink or think about drinking, I mean, it sounds like denial, but it's not denial if it's consciously done. You think, I'm just simply not going to think about that. I'm not going to romance a drink. I've made my decision to remain sober, and I'm just going to think about something else. Thought substitution is another one, recognizing that you're in danger. And instead of sitting in your own head and having it get worse, you pick up the phone and you call somebody who can help you. 
and or you divert your thoughts to something that's healthier, like a walk or exercise or listening to music or something that is going to um, switch your thinking. Another healthier way of thinking for relapse prevention is debating or challenging your addictive voice. When you're triggered and you start having those thoughts that we talked about in the other section of the show or the first section of the show, you start to you know really look at what is your thinking telling you? What is how? What's your frame of reference? And you know, one of the it sounds kind of crazy, but thinking, you know, what's the evidence here? I'm feeling triggered or having negative thoughts or I'm full of anger or resentment and what's really happening? How many of these things are true and how many of these things are I creating in my head? And uh, I actually used to have a friend I would call and I would, she'd pick up the phone and I would say, hi, I need a real or not real check-in. And I would explain the situation or the way that I was thinking to her and she would help ground me and understand that it might be a small thing that I'm making a large thing coping statements that you think to yourself about this feeling will eventually pass, that it's hard, but it's not too hard, that I can do this, or I've been through this before. And instead of getting angry at a person or having resentment against a person, you could have, you know, anger against the behavior and try to, again, take something that is, that could escalate into something larger and keep it more manageable in your head. Along with that is positive affirmations. Prop yourself up. Give yourself some credit for the hard work that you're doing. I mean, it's so easy to listen to the negative voices, and it's so hard to listen to the positive ones. But tell yourself, you know, I've said no to drinking before. I've done this before. I can do this again. You know, I'm going to treasure my sobriety. Even if you've relapsed, you can accept what you've done and get back up on the horse and really look forward instead of back. And those voices of guilt and shame, that those are the voices of relapse and of drinking. And so... You know, give yourself credit for the things that you're doing well. Review your goals and think about desirable outcomes. Like if you want to stop drinking, that's your goal. And because of that, you're going to have better relationships with your spouse or your partner or you're going to be able to be more effective at work. I mean, keep reminding yourself of all of the um, gifts that sobriety has brought you. And the flip side of that is review the negative consequences and think it's called thinking through the drink. Think about the undesirable outcomes that will come. You know, eventually, if I drink, then all the bad things that happened before, whatever they were, are going to happen again. One of the things that I'll do if I start romanticizing a drink, you know, I'm thinking about having a nice sweating sweating glass of Chardonnay on the porch as I watch the sun go down, and I'll think, you know, oh, just one, it would be so nice, it's the perfect evening for this. I'll fast forward in my head and think about myself, you know, picking a drunken fight with my husband or, you know, pawing through the linen closet looking for one of my hidden bottles of wine or forgetting a conversation I had with one of my kids, I'll pull out a memory that is the real version of what happens when I drink, not the romanticized one. You know, refraining. Look at the situation from another angle or another person's point of view. Lots of times I'll think about, you know, what my kids would see if I drank or how my husband would feel or the people who love me and stop making it all about myself and think about the people in my life that I would hurt. Also, having emotive imagery, imagine yourself behaving or feeling differently about the situation and close your eyes and practice responding in a different way, in a more rational way. You can do, sometimes it's just a simple pause or breathing or meditation or for some people it's praying for somebody who has angered you or is giving you resentments and reframe your emotion into something that's more balanced, even if it doesn't have to be positive, even if it's just more measured or more balanced. And so those are the constructive thinking behaviors we can do to prevent relapse. And Manda's going to talk about the constructive actions that we can take to avoid relapse.
Yeah, so some of the actions that you can take are getting involved in a project or a recreational activity. I know a lot of people, you know, it can be something, you know, painting around your house, cleaning your house, or uh, a lot of people pick up knitting or, like Ellie, jewelry making, and, you know, just something that keeps yourself busy and that you enjoy doing. And walking the other way, oftentimes we talk about, you know, if you are in a situation where there's going to be drinking and you get uncomfortable, leave. It's just that simple, just leave. And also, you know, that's in being con- planning ahead on that too, always if you're ever going into a situation like that, have a plan that you can leave. And another thing you can do or what you should do is get rid of all the um, alcohol that's in the house. Um, have someone remove it for you, flush it down the toilet. I'd recommend doing that supervised. But get out, get it out of the house. If it's there, you might pick it up if you have a weak moment. So just get it out of your house. I was fortunate enough to have someone clean out my house for me before I got home. Call a friend and discuss what you're thinking about and get honest with that friend before, you know, you do anything. And I know I was on the phone in early sobriety. I was on the phone constantly. It was a huge help to me. Write down how you're feeling. Do journaling and write a gratitude list. My, my sponsor had me gr- write a gratitude list anytime I was upset. And that's something that you can go back and read, too. So if you're, you know, having a difficult time, you can either be writing or reading. And do something to intentionally lift your spirits other than drinking. Go climb a mountain, take a brisk walk, you know, self-care. We talk a lot about self-care. Get in your bubble. Have some seltzer or some other non-alcoholic beverage. When I go out to dinner, I like to have my seltzer and cranberry juice. To me, that's just as relaxing and as refreshing as a, a drink used to be, And it's, but it's safe and it's healthy, and I feel like I'm doing something special for myself. Go to a meeting. That's If you're not feeling... If you're feeling out of sorts, just go to a meeting. Nine times out of ten, you're going to feel better when you leave. And, you know, again, divert yourself. Go for a walk, watch TV, play a game, cook, take a hot bath, have a cup of coffee. Just if you're having thoughts about having a drink, just divert yourself. Do something to take your mind away from where your brain is going. And those are, you know, just some constructive actions that you can take. I just have a quick thought on that, too. I mean, we talked, if you made it through our long list of um, relapse signs and symptoms and phases, a lot of it revolves around patterns, thought patterns, behavior patterns. And it's the exact same principle when we're talking about relapse prevention and recovery. It's developing different patterns that, so when you're triggered or something happens that's unexpected, you have an arsenal of things that you almost automatically do. And if you're doing those things when things are great and you're not triggered, you'll do those things when things start to fall apart and you are triggered. And it's that constant vigilance and daily maintenance of these um, healthier things, these constructive actions and thoughts that really make it second nature when things start to go wrong. I'm just very quickly going to share my relapse story, and it really that's a, an intentional segue into what happened to me because I had four years of sobriety in 2011, and within a four-month period of time, my dad died suddenly, and I was diagnosed with cancer. And my dad died in June, and it was devastating and awful, and, you know, I made it through with a lot of help from people, and I was doing a lot of the things that I had learned that had become second nature to me. I was talking to people. I was kind of going through the motions of the actions, but why? 
I, I, again, all in hindsight, I'm looking back and realizing that the underpinnings of a relapse were already starting to form for me because when people were asking me how I was doing, I constantly presented this strong exterior. You know, every now and then when I wrote, I would admit that I didn't feel as strong as I was claiming to, but I really sort of tried to muscle through it to a large degree, and I have since learned that that is really kind of like a Band-Aid over a bullet hole. It gets you through the crisis, but it doesn't really have any long-term positive-lasting effects. And so that was June of 2011, and in October of 2011, I found a lump in my neck, and which eventually was was diagnosed to be tonsil cancer. And I and I just immediately knew that something was gravely wrong. And my husband had, was away at the time, and I, you know I managed to kind of I don't and I got through about a week or so of just white knuckling my fear. I had to wait to be able to go to the doctor and be, and be diagnosed, and. I kept all of this to myself. I didn't call anybody. I didn't talk to anybody. And I was already weakened by the emotional stress of losing my dad. These are all reasons. They're not excuses, but they're reasons. And any one of these things would have been a massive red flag and a massive trigger for relapse. And I was just really simply unwilling to look at it. I had that complacency and that cockiness that we talked about of, I'm not going to drink no matter what. And I sort of said it over and over again to myself, like it was a bumper sticker over my eyes. You know, I just really didn't, I didn't follow through with the actions, and I was alone in my house, and I don't keep alcohol in my house. I do that on purpose because I, you know, my biggest fear before this relapse is that I would have one of those effort moments, and I wouldn't care because I knew I couldn't drink in safety. I knew that I was an alcoholic. There was no denial involved in that, but I was terrified, absolutely terrified that, you know, I had cancer, and I was going to die, and my dad had just died, and that my life was irrevocably ruined. And so I drank to hide. I drank to hide from my feelings. I drank to hide from my panic. I just wanted the pain to go away. And my loophole, because I never had alcohol in the house, I was standing in my pantry and looking at my tea. Again, all the things you're supposed to do. And I noticed vanilla extract on the shelf in the pantry. And I remembered hearing in a meeting one time that that had alcohol in it, so I drank that instead. And I told myself, that's not like going to a recovery meeting. I mean, no, sorry, that's not like going to a liquor store. There's a Freudian slip. That this is not the same thing as actually drinking. That's how my sick alcoholic brain rationalized it to myself. And the obsession came immediately back. It came roaring back for me. And it was about four days of sheer terror. And I started drinking vanilla extract alcoholically. And it, it lasted about four days before everything started to spiral completely out of control for me. And, and, sorry, a child came up and asked me a question. So what I learned from that experience was that it's absolutely true that you can go for years without drinking and it comes back worse than it was before. It also showed me that there's a big gap between the constructive thinking and the constructive actions. I had, I had told myself, well, I don't really need to call anyone because I know what they're going to say. And so, you know, knowing this information is enough to keep me from drinking. It's not. What I'm doing differently in recovery now I've gone through the steps again, the big, through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've really focused on things like fear as a trigger or pain avoidance, and what was I doing on a daily basis? Actions, not thoughts, but actions to avoid having this kind of relapse in the future or any kind of relapse in the future because I know that if it had been second nature in me to pick up the phone and call someone, if I had done that instead of what I did, probably I would have been okay. 
the good news is I am currently in remission from cancer, for those of you who aren't aware of it. So I've gotten through it all. And I am so grateful that I was able to maintain my sobriety through my treatments and get the help and learn the lessons that I had to learn through that relapse. I'm not recommending relapse to anyone. And as Amanda will talk about, relapse doesn't have to be a part of recovery, not at all. But that does not mean we can't learn really profound lessons from some of our mistakes. You know, one of the final things that I really took away from that is it's really not the mistakes that we make that matter. It's what we do with them. And folding that in all of the things that I don't do well, instead of allowing shame and guilt to build up, to fold those into my recovery program really helps me on a daily basis avoid relapse because shame and guilt, that's my disease talking to me. And I now recognize that. And I'm adding fear to that list as well because I think fear is really my really my biggest trigger and finding better coping mechanisms to deal with when I feel afraid has been really integral to not just maintaining my sobriety, but also my sanity. I'm much happier when I'm facing things and going through them than I am when I'm trying to hide from them. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles, little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. And Amanda, you had a couple of things you wanted to say before we go to our guests? Relapse does not have to be a part of your recovery program. I, I've been sober about two and a half years, and I have not relapsed as of yet. And I guess part of that for me is I have a real healthy fear of relapsing and I have a real healthy fear of getting sober again. I honestly, uh, I don't know if I could do it. It took a lot for me to get here. I had several uh, bottoms, what what people would consider a bottom for them and probably would have got them into recovery. And I kept going. So by the time I kind of came in kicking and screaming, or or I guess more accurately, at my wit's end, and I've just held on to it tight, and I have a real healthy fear. I've seen people do it. I know it can be done, and I would hope that I would have the courage to come back, but I just, I keep that fear at the top of my mind, and I use the tools that I learned in my recovery program. One thing for me, there's probably two keys to me that I, two tools that I use more than anything else, and one is uh, replaying my bottom in my head, thinking the drink all the way through, just knowing how bad things were for me. I have a huge fear of ever going back to that place again. I, I, I've moved on. I don't have a lot of shame. I did what I did to get here and what needed to happen the way that it happened, and I accept that. And I've forgiven myself for that, but I, I do keep those those feelings close. So I have a couple memories that I can just pull right up in my head if I ever have a thought of a drink, and that that's probably going to stop me pretty quick in my tracks. And another thing is I, I stay grateful. I am so incredibly grateful to be sober today. I actually, I really, 
I, I can't imagine drinking again. I was in a very miserable place, and I am so grateful for all the things that I have in my life today and how much more full my life is. And another subtle tool that I use is helping other people. It's just something I learned early on. I don't know really how I learned it. I just started doing it, and I found that any time that I was getting the squirrel was running around on the little treadmill in my head and my thoughts were going crazy, I would ask someone else how they were doing. And I would listen to what they had to say. And that just took me away from my brain long enough to settle it down and be, have concern for them. And that's one of the gifts of sobriety is helping other people and um, learning to not be so selfish. Because it, I used to always just worry about what was going on with me. And it's, it's something that I practice. I go to recovery meetings on a regular basis and I keep, I keep all these things fresh in my head. I've heard all kinds of stories about people relapsing and going relapsing and within someone was telling me that within four hours they relapsed and lost their job lost their license they were in jail and so that you know that keeps me grounded and but I also I don't fool myself at all and to think that it couldn't happen to me I I I do think it could if I let my defenses down so I choose to keep my defenses up and it's not that I, I don't enjoy life I enjoy it to the fullest but I keep myself out of situations I, that, you know, are not healthy for me. And, you know, I also have, a, you know, I, when I got sober, I had a very easy situation. I lived alone. I didn't have to deal with others. And I was, you know, I, because I was alone, too, I was constantly on the phone. So, like Ellie was talking about, if she was in the habit of picking up on the, the, the phone, I just am. It has nothing to do with how I'm feeling. I just happen to, I get bored on my car, uh, my car, car ride to work. So I'm talking to someone in recovery pretty much every morning. And it's just, it's just something that I do. And sometimes it's just talking about whatever. And sometimes it's talking about what's going on in my life. So, you know, I think that people around me have a good sense of where I am. And, you know, I've had people say, hey, are you okay? And uh, that's important too. That's part of the reason why we attend recovery meetings so that when you are off, and you can't even see it yourself, other people may recognize it in you and call you on it. So that's, that's just my experience, and I'd love to hear from our guests. Yeah, that's great. So we're going to go to our um, first guest, who is Allison. Thanks for having me. It was great to listen to all that information. So I got sober three years, about three years before my daughter was born, and she's um, 15 now. I got sober through a program of recovery. I was very active in going to meetings, and I had a strong um, network of sober friends in recovery. They were sort of with me as I transitioned from being, from not having a baby to having a baby, and what is it like to go to meetings and stay active in recovery with a baby. She got older. I had my second daughter, um, and I was just sort of grieving along, living a pretty happy, healthy, sober life. When I was about nine years sober, we moved to a different town, and I started a new job. It was extremely uh, demanding. I was working, you know, 50 hours a week, and, and I slowly stopped going to meetings. I would go to meetings, and then I would get really snarky because they didn't really do recovery right in this new town. I didn't like how they did this. I didn't like how they did that. And I compared it to my old, my old meetings, my old town. 
I think I may have, you know, I, I continued to work steps with things like that. And I sort of felt like I really didn't need meetings because, you know, that's all. So we moved back to where we lived before, where I got sober. So at this point, it was 9, 10, 11. I was about 11 years sober. And I had been going to meetings for two years. So I would run into folks from my old recovery network. And I, you know, we'd hug and we'd promise to get together and meet at the park for a play date. But I wasn't in the habit of going to meetings. And, and I didn't really see a need. Honestly, I lived in at my house with alcohol. My husband drinks. We would go on vacations. There would be drinking around me. It never bothered me. It never made me, I never really thought about it. By that point, it would have been 12 years of sobriety, 11 years of sobriety. And, you know, I was just cruising along. And so one day I, I ended up going back to graduate school. I'd been in graduate school for a couple of years. And I was actually, how the relapse happened was I was mixing. So I, I just want to make really clear that I just, I didn't see any signs because I never thought about alcohol. I never thought about drinking. I was around alcohol and was not tempted or triggered or anything. And it had been so long. And I was actually mixing a uh, batch of mulled wine for a party we were going to. Someone asked if I'd bring the mulled cider and the mulled wine. And I said, sure. And I decided that it, I needed to taste it to see if the proportions were correct. And I'm, now that I look back, there was, a, there was kind of a moment where I thought, wait a minute, you don't drink. This is weird. This might not be smart. And I, this, I clearly remember having the thought, you know, surely by now I have learned my lesson. It has okay. been, at that point, it had been 14 years. I hadn't had a drink in 14 years. Hadn't gone to a recovery meeting in probably five and I thought uh, I had learned my lesson. So really, if I think about what was the warning sign for me, it was stopping. It was not thinking about alcoholism as a disease and seeing it as something that I could maybe grow out of. Surely I've learned my lesson. I haven't had a drink in a really long time. I could have a sip of this and you know, see what happens. So, well, what happened was within about a year, I was drinking alcoholically and really felt trapped. I, I knew that I knew how to get sober. I had done it before. And bottom line, it took me about three years to get willing to go to any length to be sober again because I didn't want to have to go and do the work. I knew what kind of work it was going to entail. And so I just had to hit kind of a grisly bottom that, Ultimately, I had this safety net of knowing that there was a way back, and that was, way was for me was going to recovery meetings, twelve step meetings, and so I started to go to meetings. This is, I, I, so I started to go to meetings and continued to drink, which really scared me to death because mm-hmm. I saw the progressiveness of the disease, and always in the back of my mind, I thought, "Oh, well, there's this safety net." <laughs> You know, when, when I hit, I, when it really gets hard, I can do this and I know I'll get sober. Mm-hmm. And for first, there was a year where I was trying to do it on my own and actually telling my family that I, telling my husband that I wasn't drinking anymore and sneak drinking for about a year. And then about three months, 
where I was still drinking and going to 12-step meetings. So it was just that's part of the story, too. The bottom was that I had to become um, even more willing, more willing to do the work, willing to get a sponsor, willing to go to rehab if that's what it was going to take. And so I did those things. I didn't go to rehab, but I did those things and started doing the work. And, yeah, and now I've been sober again for about six months. So I'll talk a little bit about sort of what my relapse prevention is or what I've sort of learned from the whole thing. One thing is that I am very clear that I need to stay close to people who understand that alcoholism is a disease and not a shortcoming. It's not something that we recover from. It's not something that we learn our lesson and we can do it differently. I mean, I, I know that on a bone deep level that, that, that it is a disease. And it isn't just me knowing it on a level because my alcoholic brain has a very short memory and I can't just know it. I need to be immersed in hearing people talk about alcoholism and the disease of alcoholism. Um, and so I get that through my online sober community. I get that through 12-step meetings. Also, staying close and being of service to newcomers. I never want to forget what that bottom felt like. I have, Ellie, you talked about those stories, and I and Amanda, you did too. And I have a, I have a journal where I wrote about them when I started working the steps with a sponsor. And I will go back and reread mm-hmm. that absolute humiliation, degradation. There's like three scenes that I don't ever want to have fade from my memory. So pulling that memory out. And then, like Amanda, like you told us about having that healthy fear. I had a healthy fear. I remember some, I used to say in sometimes in meetings, you know, it's really not about alcohol anymore for me. It's about my, my living. It's about steps for living. It's about how, knowing how to make amends. It's about blah, blah, blah. And all those things are true, but it is about alcohol. I have a mm. physical addiction to alcohol. But the only thing, the only way that I can deal with that is to not drink. And then I have this whole life that I have to live, and so I have to do other things for that life. Mm-hmm. So thinking behind the behavior. Yeah, I think that's about it. I'm, and, you know, all the stuff about being grateful. I'm very grateful I'm sober. I'm grateful that I actually i am having glimpses of gratitude that things got as bad as they got because I don't want to go back there again. Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. One of the things that you talked about that really resonated with me, and I, 
and I did not realize this was happening until afterwards, was I, even though I was going to recovery meetings on a regular basis and sitting in those meetings and saying, hi, I'm Ellie and I'm an alcoholic and going through the motions of identifying myself as an alcoholic on a fairly regular basis, I wasn't feeling it anymore. I wasn't really having that healthy fear of alcohol. I wasn't identifying myself as an alcoholic inside. You know, I really, really can relate to your saying it's really about living. It's not about the alcohol. And I would almost to the point where I get frustrated with a lot of the people who had been around in recovery for a while saying, you know, just don't drink. Don't drink for one day. You know, I thought, yeah, 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 I get that. I get that. But, and there's so much trouble in that but, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to have to think of myself as an alcoholic every day. This is about living, not, you know, and I just had all of this kind of rationalization. I didn't, I was not aware that I was doing it. I and somebody said, I know I have another drink in me. I know I have another drunk in me. I don't know that I have another recovery, so I'm holding on to my seat. And that's sort of how I feel about it. Yeah. Like yeah. it was hard to get it was hard to get back. I don't want I'm never gonna play that game again. Well, thank you so much, Allison. I that your story is yes, so powerful. Your you. message is awesome and Absolutely. we really, really, really appreciate your time. Okay, Lisa. I'm here. My experience with relapse happened very on after surrendering to the fact that I'm an alcoholic. The end of my drinking was, you know, not pretty. And I had gone into a a detox, a 30-day treatment, and then chose to live in a sober living environment for an additional 30 days. So it was with the help and a nudge, I guess you'd say, from my family members and people that cared about me and loved me. And I was ready. I was definitely at a bottom. And one thing that I, when I went into treatment was that I had expected that I was going to learn how to go back to living the life I was leading, just minus the alcohol. And that was a huge mistake. I looked at sort of treatment like I was going for another degree. And, you know, I had 100% attendance at every <laughs> single, at every single, you know, meditation opportunity. I mean, if it was, if it was, mandatory. I was certainly there and I was in the front row. And if it was optional, I was still there. And I literally got a hundred percent on every single thing that took place in the 30 days that I was there and did all sorts of reading and homework and made a point to, you know, reach out to, to the people that I could relate to that were older, some of the younger ones and, you know, put my all into it and then stayed in the sober living environment that was not such a protected environment, but it was. There were rules around it, but it was sort of like a transitional 30 days before I came back home and did the same thing. I, you know, I looked at it like my job was to read about recovery, do the work on recovery, make a network of people, of new people in this area. And I felt like I came back here like I just graduated and was the valedictorian. And, um, so, you know, you talk about expectations and you also, you know, and I felt like, okay, you, you've talked about that toolbox. You know, I have this super duper model because, and take a look at the tools that I've got. And, and there, there goes the cockiness. You know, I, I had done all of that. And what I realized early on is, and what led me to my relapse and very quickly was, a few different things. Somebody who was part of and very much a supporter of me getting sober kind of changed their toot and and decided that, you know, it really wasn't working out for, for this person, me being all 
sober if you're not. So I, it was very destructive. And I guess there, there was something that they didn't teach me in all the hours of class that I sat through was that not everybody is a fan of you being sober. That was something I wasn't prepared for. It was just it was a matter of, of somebody saying something. Yeah, you can go down there. You can fool everybody. You can't fool me. You, you chose booze over your kids, and you're going to be nothing but a drunk in the end. Mm-hmm. And it was a hurtful word. That was all it took. And I started drinking without my permission is the term I've heard you say, Ellie, mm-hmm. very quickly. And it didn't get better. It wasn't better. It, my disease picked up right where it was. The arsenal of tools that I did have prepared me to quickly get back and say, I'm not willing to, to give it all up. And that whole idea of the expectation that I could kind of come back home and live my life exactly as I was, just minus the alcohol, had to take on a very new meaning. You know, I went to recovery meetings locally and tried some of them, and, and I kind of felt like the recovery in my hometown, it just was, it didn't compare to the recovery in my get sober town. And that's similar to what Allison said. I was looking for, well, you know, this, this, the meetings aren't the same, the people aren't the same. And in reality, it's on me. My program is my program. And I, it's going to be as good as I make it. Mm-hmm. So I had a friend that was successfully leading a sober life and had about a year more sobriety than I did that was leading a life that kind of revolved around recovery. And at first I said, oh, God, please don't make me turn into that person. <laughs> and, in, you know, of, oh, this is great. And I said, but what I'm doing is not working. So I'm just going to jump on. And, and that's what I did. And so I, I, I went to meetings. And if I didn't like that meeting, I went to another meeting. I made sure that I, you know, I developed my own network of people. And now I look at it and I changed the people that I hung out with. It, it's, it's not, it wasn't realistic for me to be in a situation and, and do the same things with the same people because the people that I used to associate with on a daily basis drank like I did. Mm-hmm. And so to think that just me taking away the alcohol was going to solve the problem wasn't going to improve my environment. Of, of maintaining my sobriety. And so for me, it was, it was changing a lot. It was meeting new people. It was, you know, it was saying, okay, I've, now I've got to take the tools that I've learned there and now put it into real life action. I thought, great, you watch this. I just got my MBA in recovery. I've got this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I totally relate to that, Lisa. I was like, I was such a little goody two shoes in rehab that oh, that people thought I was a like an RA or a counselor there, and they would ask me like permission for a pass or something. I say, oh no no no, I'm a patient. It's like you are, but you have a clipboard, you know. <laughs> oh, I did the same thing. I went up to this really, you know, tattooed covered person or whatever who looked scary, and I said, you know, welcome. You know, my name's Lisa. He was a counselor. <laughs> you know, but I, but I thought, oh, look at that poor soul over there. Nobody's going to talk to him, you know. And so here, he's got better recovery than anybody. So if you, if this disease doesn't play tricks with everyone, there's a strong example. 
So we'll end it there for this episode, friends. That's it for this condensed version of this conversation, which does actually go on for a whole nother hour. It's available on patreon.com slash the bubble hour. You get access to full episodes of our entire back catalog ad free. So if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head on over there. Thanks for listening to the bubble hour. We'll talk to you again. Take good care. Own it, I did that Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame Strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see I did that, not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Oh, yes, head on. You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession their ears. The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror. And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I'm old, different Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you said I'm free When you say I'm old, different Not proud, but I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.